According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians, almost ready for chapter 2. We're going to wrap up the last details out of chapter 1, and if we have time, we'll tease a few things from chapter 2. Getting ready to start chapter 2. That may wait till next Wednesday, though, but... We'll see how far we get with it here tonight. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment to make sure that we are filled with the spirit, that uh, we are, have confessed our sins, that we are restored to fellowship, that we are humble under the authority of the word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the blessing of your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to come together. Father, we call upon your faithfulness tonight as we study to show ourselves approved that, Father, we would receive the word of God implanted that's able to save our souls. And to that end, Father, we ask you to remove any distractions, remove any pride or arrogance, any any mental attitude that would hinder us from completely accepting the authority of your word as it goes forth. Father, I thank you that your word is God-breathed. It is profitable. And uh, Father, we, we claim that profit tonight. So encourage us and bless us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. I want to take a, for, a few moments for questions and answers tonight. And uh, there is a microphone runner ready to go. So who wants to have our lead-off question? I got one by email. We can start with that. Uh, Bill asked last week if I remembered the email Deb sent me, and I did not, so I went back and I looked. Deb, uh, Deb Kelly had sent me an email. Uh, after the rapture, the unbelievers that are left behind, will they still have the opportunity to become saved? And that's actually a marvelous question, and there are different answers to that question. Uh, good men, faithful men answer that in different ways. Um, but there is a passage uh, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that I keep going back to uh, because I know what it says, and based on what it says, I am pretty confident in what it means. And, uh, and yet, it is such that I think folks struggle with it. So um, it deals with the uh, revelation of Antichrist and, um, and things here. Are you familiar with the text I'm talking about, Second Thessalonians chapter 2? And so this church had received a letter, and it had Paul's name on it, but it was a forgery. Paul didn't send it. But uh, Satan had, you know, uh, sent this letter through one of his minions just to get them all upset, to get the believers in Thessalonica all upset that somehow they missed the rapture, or there wasn't going to be a rapture. And so uh, it says, we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. All right. If someone tries to tell you that we're in the tribulation, don't believe them. Say, I know for a fact we're not in the tribulation because I'm still here. <laughs> All right. Uh, the rapture of the church is going to take us out of here. We are the bride. We are not destined for the wrath to come. So let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the departure comes first. Usually it's translated apostasy. I like departure comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. And so this is the introduction to Antichrist here in this chapter. He's called the man of lawlessness. 
here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. It goes on to say, let me skip down here a little bit. Do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now? It's a what that restrains him in verse 6. And then it's a he who restrains him in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And uh, if uh, the, the clear conclusion is that we're talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only thing I can think of that a lot of people can think of that is both a what and a he. The what that restrains him and the he who restrains him is uh, the Holy Spirit. All right. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. This is Antichrist. And uh, Jesus will deal with him when he comes back at second advent. Now, um, this this uh, seems interesting to me. You get to verse 10, with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, for the perishing ones. Remember, we're not perishing ones. Uh, that uh, Jesus came so that we wouldn't perish, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in Him should not what? Should not perish. That's right. You and I are no longer perishing ones. We are saved ones. But the perishing ones here, we're told, um, are going to buy into the lie. They're going to buy into the deception of Antichrist. And it says, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Okay? And that appears to be a finite period of time. That appears to be a set uh, time period in which they had the opportunity, but they didn't. And because they had the opportunity, but didn't, they faced the consequence. All right? Something similar comes in verses 11 and 12. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth when they had the time to do so, when they had the opportunity to do so. They did not believe the truth, but they took pleasure in wickedness. All right. So those two verses, verse 10 and verse 12, they lead to the conclusion that for the, these people in the tribulation, that they had their chance. That, that God, part of His judgment upon them is that he, uh, he subjects them to this deluding influence. And so on that basis, my conclusion is, is that anybody who rejected the gospel in the church age is subject to the wrath of God and the tribulation by means of the strong delusion. Okay? And if you want more on that, uh, R.B. Theme wrote a book called Strong Delusion, and there's other pastors that have taught it, Strong Delusion. Now, so that means who can get saved in the tribulation then, right? People that didn't reject the gospel in the church age, okay? Mostly children, those that were too young to accept the gospel in the church age, under the age of accountability, or others that never heard the gospel, or others, as long as they did not reject it. I think that's the key. Church age rejection leaves them vulnerable to the strong delusion of Antichrist in the, in the tribulation. Anyway, so that was Debbie's first question. Her second question then, at the second coming of Christ to begin the thousand-year reign, will there still be unbelievers at that moment, or are the unbelievers removed from the earth at that time? And so the answer is yes and yes. Um, there will be unbelievers that somehow survive the tribulation that will have to stand judgment. And uh, unbelieving Jews 
appear before the wilderness judgment of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 20. Unbelieving Gentiles uh, are the goats of the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25. And so every unbeliever that comes before the conquering king, every unbeliever is removed. He slays them on the spot. And they go to hell. Uh, Only believers enter into the millennial kingdom at the beginning of that thousand year reign of Christ. So that's the, the answer there. All right. So that was by email, and now we get a live question from the front row. Get a microphone over here. At least he appears to still be alive on the front row. It's a live question on the front row. So a follow-up on Debbie's first question. Uh What is the purpose and function of the 144,000 if it's not to witness to people? Oh, it is. Oh, the purpose is to witness to people. That's right. So it's only child evangelism fellowship kind of stuff? Well, like I say, there's going to be, that will be a group that would be uh, available to receive the gospel, but not the only group. Like I say, there's the group that never heard it. There's, there's a, uh, the possibility for other folks, a lot of Jewish evangelism, for example. The, uh, the 144,000 are all Jewish evangelists. It's, it's amazing. When you, when you read the book of Revelation and read about all the folks that get saved, it's called myriads that get saved, an untold number that get saved. And that's after God takes all the time to count 144,000 by you know, 12 by 12 by 12, tribe by tribe by tribe. But then when he talks about those that are saved, he says it's, it's too great to count. So there is a tremendous revival in the tribulation. All right. Other questions tonight? These are good. I appreciate these. Other questions tonight? Yes? No? Maybe so. No? Okay. Well, then let's go to Philippians chapter 1. Thank you, Chris. And let's uh, wrap up the last of the details here. We are in point 8. We've taken uh, really verses 21 through 30, the last half of the chapter, or the last third of the chapter, and uh, giving this uh, an outline development that... uh, currently has eight points of study i have it right and as in the the eighth and final point comes from verses 28 through 30 and in these verses we see opponents we see suffering and we see conflict all right and uh, so let's just read it here it says uh starting in verse 27 only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Okay, And that unity, that striving together, that one spirit, one mind, that's what's going to be uh, refreshed when we get to chapter 2. Paul's going to take those themes, he's going to talk about consolation in Christ, encouragement, comfort, fellowship, and all these things. Those themes come back again in chapter 2. He goes on to say now, in no way alarmed by your opponents. And so here we see opponents. Uh, Are there opponents? Are there conflict? Uh, Do you have problems? Great. (laughs) Okay. That's normal. That's called life. That's called the angelic conflict. And so uh, whether we're talking about an individual or we're talking about a marriage or we're talking about a local church or what have you, there's going to be opponents. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be uh, suffering. That's not something to be alarmed about. 
in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. And so God's in charge of all of this. And when your opponents are are attacking you and all this conflict's going on, and you're walking by faith, you have faith rest, and and you're just as peaceful as as imaginable, and they're getting more and more frustrated (laughs) because none of their plots are working, and they can't get you rattled, that's a sign. That is a sign. It's a sign of their destruction. It's a sign of your salvation. And so we can, uh, we can rejoice in that. These things are not alarms. Don't be all panicky and thinking there's something wrong or you've got to change or you've got to do something, right? And uh, Satan would love to get you to be alarmed and, uh, and to start making poor decisions based on fear, right? That's, uh, in fact, that's the, the Thessalonians text we were just in. Don't be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. And uh, something very similar here, in not one way alarmed by your opponents. Because that's, I mean, ultimately, what else does Satan have? He's disarmed. He was defeated at the cross. Uh, all he can do now is prowl about and roar and get you all scared and get you running and doing, doing things you shouldn't do just because you're, you're in, in, a, in a, what was the term? Panic palace, I think, that Colonel Theme developed. The idea of panic palace. You know, because you're not, you're not taking the time to think it through. You're not praying over it. You're not searching the scriptures. You're not walking by faith. You're just all in a panic and rushing off to, to make a choice. And uh, I tell you, the scripture says you're going to make a wrong choice in, in, in that kind of situation. So verse 29, for to you it has been granted, for to you it is a grace gift from God the Father for Christ's sake. Remember, it's for Christ's sake, not even for your own sake. You're going to grow in this and you're going to be stronger and you're going to benefit, but it's really not even for your benefit. It's for Christ's sake that we suffer. How about that? Isn't that beautiful? For to you it is a grace gift from God the Father for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer, and again, for Christ's sake. It is a blessing to Jesus Christ when we suffer for His sake. And it, uh, God the Father is in charge of all of this. Finally then, verse 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And uh, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing weird or abnormal about it. It's very normal. Don't consider a strange thing that, that you're suffering. It's, uh, it's common. It's common to Paul. It's common to the Corinthians. It's common to the Philippians. It's common to the Austin Bible Churchians. Okay? It is who we are. We're called by God's grace to believe in His Son, so we are called by God's grace to suffer for His Son. It's the same grace. And uh, the better we wrap our minds around this and and celebrate this, I think the better uh, we're going to be. So uh, now we had some subpoints on this. I'm going to just kind of zip through. I'm not going to repeat the A with the subpoints 1 and 2 or the B with the subpoints 1 and 2, except to say this is our grace gift. Not only to be saved, but also to suffer. Not only to be saved. See, I mean, if that's all it was, if, if God's plan, if God was content just to get people saved and, and then that was it, well, then He wouldn't have given us a Bible. Who needs a Bible for that? <laughs> okay? He could have just, you know, the Holy Spirit could have come and could have inspired a tract, you know, a gospel tract. And then, you know, then, you know we would have all gotten saved and there's no, nothing beyond that. Okay? But the Holy Spirit inspired more than a gospel track. 
He inspired the canon, the 66 books, the, the mind of Christ. We, we have the privilege to study to show ourselves approved and to grow. And, and really, remember in this, especially in this church age, the father is calling out a bride for his son, right? Were you here a couple weeks back when Randy was teaching that on Sunday morning, the bride for Isaac? You, you realize that's a long chapter and there's a lot of work that goes into that? Abraham had it all planned out and the servant uh, followed that plan and kind of winged it a little bit on his own and adapted it a little bit. And uh, There was a lot that went into getting Rebecca and bringing Rebecca back so that she and Isaac could be married. And there's a lot that goes into that. The father is, is, uh, is, is very involved in providing the bride for his son. And that's the pattern. Isaac and, uh, Abraham and Isaac is the pattern for the father and the son, right? God the father and Jesus Christ. And so recognize that. God does not want to get just a bunch of babies saved and then take a bunch of babies to heaven. Spiritual babies, right? What kind of bride is that? Does he want to give his, his son a, a baby bride? Or does he want to give his son a, a mature bride, a, a bride suitable for him? A bride that is equipped and prepared and, and developed and trained and suited for the glory of his son. That's what this whole plan is about. That's why the church age gets more testing than Israel ever had or Gentiles ever had or angels. The church age is the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. We, the bride, are being suited uh, on that basis. And that's, uh, that should be, well, daunting and <laughs> terrifying. But at the same time, it should be a thrill. It should be exciting. It should be amazing to think uh, that we are the ones that the Father is suiting for his bride. And so uh, it is a grace thing. Our grace gift is not only to be saved, but also to suffer on behalf of Christ. So um, granted is charizomai. This is our, our free grace gift. To believe, to pastuo, the fact that I pastuoed and got saved, that's a grace thing. God allowed me to pastuo and, and get saved. Okay, And then also to pasco, to suffer. That's a grace thing. He is letting me suffer for Christ's sake for Christ's sake. It benefits Christ that I suffer because it gives Christ a more mature bride when he needs it. He's, he's going forth to, to conquer Armageddon. He's going forth to reign in the millennium. He's going forth to rule with a rod of iron, to rule in the midst of his enemies. He is about to undertake an assignment at second advent. And if you think about it, when he came first advent, he didn't have a bride. Now he's coming at second advent and God's going to give him a bride. And what he's going to do at second advent, what he's going to do in the millennial kingdom requires that bride, which requires us to grow up. Requires us to be equipped even as he was equipped. All right. And so this is uh, the blessings there to Pasco, to suffer. Finally then, subpoint C. And this is the last subpoint and the last main point, the last slide, the last thing we've got to deal with here in chapter 1. We're talking about conflict. We're talking about struggle. Okay, So are you down for the struggle? Is that the, <laughs> is that the expression? Um, the idea is agony, right? The agony. Um, that's what it is. It's agony. Okay, The Greek word gives us the English word. Uh, it doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound pleasant. Okay, And it's not. It's a lot of work. Blood, sweat, and tears. And uh, it, is, it is conflict. The, the noun is agon, A-G-O-N, Strong's number 73. The verb is agonizomai, Strong's number 75. And between the noun and the verb, you can combine them together and get a, a verse list through the New Testament and you have a, a, a foundation 
for this thing that we call the doctrine of agonology, the doctrine of the believer's struggle, the recognition that when you named the name of Christ, that wasn't the end of all your problems. That just uh, did away with all your problems as an unbeliever and gave you a whole new set of glorious problems as a believer. Okay? And it's a thrill. It is a blessing to suffer for His sake. And so agonology. And the idea is, is we are wrestling, we are struggling, we are striving, we are endeavoring. Sometimes it's a military application, like we fight the good fight. Sometimes it's an uh, athletic image, right? It's, uh, it's an athletic metaphor whereby we, we run with endurance the race that's set before us. That we are, uh, you have to compete as an athlete, you have to compete according to the rules. And uh, there's uh, the verse there in 1 Corinthians 9.25 that addresses that. So I want to make sure we go through this. Um, We've seen already the top verses there that uh, testing is common to man. Uh, It's called a shared conflict in Philippians 1.30. That uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able, right? Because all of our testing is common to man. Uh, 1 Peter 4 verses 12 and 13 address that, that don't think it's some strange thing that's happening to you. You're not the first person to deal with this. Okay? You know? I talk to marriages and say, guess what? You're not unique in the history of marriage. Okay? Every marriage. Welcome to marriage. Or talk to, uh, uh, you know, any testing. The, the death of a loved one and other things. All these testings. Okay? So keep that in mind. My dad. Keep my dad in prayer tomorrow. Alright? It's the fifth anniversary of mom's passing and it's his birthday, and uh, she went and died on his birthday, and so every year his birthday comes around, and he gets another reminder. So anyway, pray for that. But it's not, it's not unique, okay? He's not the only widower on the planet that lost a wife, all right? And so this is what we talk about, that God is testing us, but he's testing us in a way that brothers and sisters get to come alongside, fellow believers get to come alongside, those that understand our conflict come alongside, and they love us, and they pray for us, and they support these things. And that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. All right. Anyway, those are the top verses there. Philippians 1.30, 1 Corinthians 10.13, and 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, that uh, testing is common to man. Beyond that now, we, we want to deal with these verses as it relates to the conflict, the struggle, agonology, all right? And um, if it takes me two hours to get through these, you're going to be here late tonight. If we can knock it out in 10 minutes, then you're going to leave early tonight. How about that? Deal? We can. <laughs> but I want, to, I, want to, I want to get through this. I want to make sure we get it. I want to make sure we're solid on it. And then, I'm just teasing, if we have time remaining, then we can get a preview on chapter 2 and, and take a look ahead and see uh, all the neat things coming up in, in Philippians chapter 2. But anyway, John 18, 36 is the first use of agonizomai. And this is the one that Jesus was talking to Pilate and said, hey, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, you know the text I'm talking about? John chapter 18. I don't want to just assume that you know it. Um, we did discuss it Sunday morning, but it was towards the end of the hour, and a lot of folks tune out by then. John eighteen thirty six. So Pilate is quizzing Jesus here at his trial, and um, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? He's very dismissive in this whole thing. 
your own nation and chief priest delivered you to me, what have you done? <laughs> okay? So Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. Okay, that's agonizomai. My servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. See? And so we learn a lot right from this verse alone, okay? That this verb to fight, this verb is, is, is powerful. I mean, if you, got, if you don't want your king captured then, and you're going to fight for him, you're going to defend him, think about the Secret Service would take a bullet for the president or, or whatever. I mean, just think, it's this, this a strong term for fighting, okay? Now, his kingdom is not of this world, so his servants aren't doing that, but still the imagery tells us a lot about what this verb is, okay? I also think it helps us to avoid bad doctrine, especially uh, for some, some churches that get involved in crusades and different things. And, and they're just, I think they're misdirected in terms of what the kingdom is. We're not going to bring the kingdom in through fighting. We're not going to bring the kingdom in through political action. We're not going to bring the kingdom in through anything. We can do. The kingdom's going to come when the king comes. How about that? <laughs> okay. And so, uh, and he'll do all the fighting. We'll just follow behind him on white horses, just amazed. At, uh, at what he does. Anyways, that's our first use, and it kind of gives us a sense for the fight that this is. In 1 Corinthians 9, it's an athletic metaphor. It's the same verb, but it's not in a military context, it's in a sports context. And, uh, and we do the same thing today. We've got, if you watch a football game or a basketball game or baseball or something, you know, they will use warfare language just as an idiom to talk about, you know, vanquishing your foe, okay, or, or things of that nature. So um, verse 24 says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games, and that's our agonizomai, competes in the games, uh, exercises self-control in all things. They do it for to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And so in our struggle, in our race, we've got to make sure that we're doing it according to the rules. We've got to do, make sure that we're, we're, we're trying. We're running hard. We're giving it everything. It's maximum effort. Because, uh, you know, God is not... Uh, <laughs> our culture today where everybody gets a trophy. Everybody gets a participation ribbon. It doesn't matter if you came in first, you get the same dumb ribbon that the kid that came in you know, 45th gets. You know, And so... Why try at that point? If, if all you're going to get is the same thing that Slowpoke over there got, then what, what's the point in, in breaking a sweat or, or hurting? Okay? Anyway, that's not the Christian way of life. There are winners and losers at the judgment seat, and there are more rewarded and less rewarded and unrewarded losers at the judgment seat of Christ. And we want to, uh, I don't want any Austin Bible Church losers at the judgment seat of Christ, okay? We're going to be overcomers. We're going to be victorious in our uh, laying up treasure in heaven. All right. So I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Look, if you're in a boxing ring, then the point is to hit the other guy. So hit him a lot, hard. Okay. If you're running, you want to run fast. You want to be the first across that finish line. I disciplined my body and made it my, make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Accountability gets double bad when you're a preacher, okay? If you're a Bible teacher, 
what James says, let not many of you become teachers, brethren, because you will incur a stricter judgment. All right. And uh, there you have it. So there, that's an athletic competition. Uh, Philippians 1.30 is our passage tonight where we talk about the, the, the uh, conflict that's common to Paul, it's common to the Philippians. It's what Bible churches go through. We've got a string of them in Colossians, starting in Colossians 1.29. And you'll see these. Colossians 1.29. And, uh, you know, welcome to the ministry. It's, it's not a cakewalk. Um, he talks about this, starting in verse 24. He says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. So here's Paul. He's suffering for the sake of the, of the Colossians, but who's he really suffering for? For the sake of Jesus Christ. Okay? When you serve one another, you're serving Jesus Christ. When you suffer for your brother, when you suffer for your sister, you're suffering for Christ's sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's a powerful statement. And when we finish Philippians and move on to Colossians, we're going to spend some time on that because that's, that's something right there. You're talking about the passion of the Christ, the suffering of the Christ, what he went through on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. Well, what's he going through today? What's he going through today all over this world in the body of Christ where every member of his body is suffering? And when one member suffers, we all suffer. Think how Christ deals with that as the head of the church in his suffering through the body of Christ. And so there's a lot of doctrine that comes in here. Now, um, get down to verse 28, it says, we proclaim Him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. That's why you've got to knock it out in Bible class and study to show yourself approved. And then what you don't learn in Bible class, you get to learn in testing. Life testing. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. See, Paul got what I'm getting at, and we, he doesn't want to take a bunch of babies with him to heaven. He wants mature believers standing there with full reward. So he says, For this purpose I also labor, striving. And so we have a verb, kapiao, for labor to the point of exhaustion, and then we have agonizomai for striving. But maybe the best treasure of all is when you spot the fact that the striving is not according to your own ability. <laughs> the striving is not the best you can do. The striving is not all your strength. The striving is His power. Striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. All right? If you're working your hardest, quit doing that. Work His hardest instead. <laughs> okay? Don't work your hardest. Work His hardest. He's giving you the empowerment. He is, uh, it's His power that mightily works within me. So that's Colossians 1.29. And what does that lead right to? Chapter 2, verse 1. Kind of a poor chapter division. He says, I want you to know how great an agony, a struggle, I have on your behalf. This was a struggle he had for the sake of the Colossians, and he never met them. And for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Paul had more work than he could, he could shake a stick at, right? And there were more churches he couldn't go to. There were more places. And everywhere he went, people were getting saved. And then what were they doing? They were going back home. And they were getting people saved. And they were getting churches started. And they were saying, hey, Paul, come over here. We've got a church going at Colossae. We need you. Or come over here, Paul. We've got a church going at Laodicea. We need you. 
and all these places, and he just had a burden for him and, and a conflict. He wanted to go. A great struggle that I've had on your behalf. Okay? And for all those that have not personally seen my face. Now, so that's chapter 2 and verse 1. More of a, of a struggle in chapter 4 and verse 12, Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, Epaphras, who is one of your number. I love Epaphras. He's a neat guy. And uh, came from Colossae, came to Paul in his imprisonment. I think it was Ephesus, like I say. Epaphras went to Ephesus, <laughs> met Paul, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So that laboring earnestly, that's our agonies of mine. That's our struggle. And he's constantly struggling uh, in, in his prayers. What's your prayer life like? Do you break a sweat when you pray? Okay? Spiritual sweat. <laughs> you know? Or are your prayers really not that energetic? Is it more of a, you know, relaxed kind of kind of prayer? Here it's called agony. When Jesus prayed, he was sweating great drops of blood. <laughs> you know, how fervent are we in, uh, in these things? Well, Epaphras labored earnestly uh, for the Coloss- Colossian believers in his prayers. It goes on to say, for I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and uh, for those who are in Laodicea, those that are in Hierapolis, okay? Here's where we learn Luke was a doctor. The beloved physician sends you his greetings, also Demas. Demas hadn't abandoned Paul yet at the point this uh, this letter was written. So here's the agony, okay? And this is this is something neat. You know, brothers and sisters and we got folks and and, and we get it, you know, uh, in terms of you're not uh, you're not going to go to the mission field anytime soon. Uh, you don't really have the uh, the phys- physiology, the 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 health and the strength and the youth and the energy, I mean, um, for a lot of stuff, but guess what? You can be the mightiest prayer warrior this world's ever seen. All right, and I've known uh, I've known little old ladies in wheelchairs that put the rest of us to shame because they're they're powerful in their prayer life, and that's uh, that's something else. Okay, so we should imitate this uh, in that regard. Then uh, from Colossians we go to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians two two. First Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.2, it says in verse 1, You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, remember the Philippian jailer, the events of Acts chapter 16, he left Philippi and the first stop after that was, was these guys, was Thessalonica. And they knew this. So after we'd been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid what? Amid much opposition. Okay? And so there it is. And uh, it's a conflict. It's, uh, it's a struggle. It's opposition. It's not easy. And yet, uh, what do you do? Do you just back off? Do you give up? Do you say, oh, okay, I guess uh, I'm kind of rocking the boat. I better back off a little bit, you know? I'm, I'm, I keep preaching Jesus and people are getting upset. So I guess I better kind of, you know, tone it down a little bit. <laughs> the Apostle Paul said, no, 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 no. Put your foot on the accelerator. Do still more. And uh, 
It's not a reason to back down just because there's conflict. Are you kidding me? If there's conflict, then uh, you're doing something right. There's a, <laughs> that's an army expression, or no, it's an, I guess it's an Air Force expression. If you're, uh, if, you're, if you're receiving flack, that means you're flying over the target. <laughs> that means you're where you're supposed to be. So uh, get in there, drop your bombs and, and, uh, and that. All right. How about uh, 1 Timothy 6.12? 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. You know? So, and this uses both the noun and the verb. So, agonizomai, the good agon, the good agony. Agonizomai, the good agon. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. And this is a very active thing that, that our eternal life is described as here, right? It's something that we do something with today. Eternal life is not something we're waiting to get when we, you know, we're not going to receive it when we go to heaven. We have it already. We have it now. But how often do we take hold of it? How often do we just grab it with both hands and lift it up to, for the world to see and, say, and, and engage in the good fight? Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. See, this goes to what we were studying in Hebrews on Jesus Christ, the apostle and a high priest of our confession. Okay? And so this is our confession. And if you make the good confession, if you stand, if you name the name of Christ, like I say, if you, if you undergo water baptism, then you in a very public way are, are taking part in a ritual that just shakes your fist at this fallen world and says, I don't belong to you anymore. I belong to Jesus Christ. He died, was buried, was raised on my behalf. I've died and been buried and raised again in Him. And water baptism is the sign that I'm not in this world anymore. I belong to Christ. And, and what happens then, of course, is you get a big bullseye on your back. <laughs> the adversary starts throwing arrows your way because you've named the name of Christ. But uh, it's not something to run away from. Take hold of eternal life and in advance. You're fighting the good fight. So you made the good confession in the uh, presence of many witnesses. I charge you. This is uh, an older pastor to a younger pastor, you know, Paul to Timothy. Uh, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. We read that earlier, right? He stood before Pilate and said, my kingdom is not of this world. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just stay faithful. Can you stay faithful? One more day, just one more day. A trumpet could sound today. Could have sounded yesterday. Could sound tomorrow. So just stay faithful. One more day. And, uh, And he will appear. All right. So fight the good fight. Don't lose heart. How, how tragic is it when you, you struggle and you struggle and you struggle and, and, and just think about how sad that is. You know, you struggle through whatever, a length of time and, 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 uh, and, and you're enduring, you have your ups, you have your downs, you have some victories, you have some defeats, but man, you're just struggling, you're staying faithful, you're enduring and then after five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever, and then finally you just lose heart. And you throw in the towel, you give up on God, you give up on yourself, and you just walk away from teaching, walk away from the church, and uh, 
the next morning the trumpet sounds and <laughs> he, all you needed was just that one more day, okay? Because that trumpet sounds and we're snatched up to be with the Lord. He descends with a shout and then we want that shout to be him, not us, okay? We don't want us to be going, oh no, okay? I think a lot of believers are going to be in trouble. They're going to really regret what they're doing when that trumpet sounds. They're going to be, they're going to be doing something stupid, in carnality, in darkness. They're going to be, you know, there's, there's believers that will not be ready and yet they'll be snatched up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So let's fight the good fight. Let's not lose heart. Let's not, let's not uh, fall away from the faith. Okay, That's why we're teaching Hebrews right now, that we don't fall away. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.7. In 1 Timothy, he was ordering Timothy to do this. And now in 2 Timothy, he's saying, this is what I did. He's ready to die. He knows. He's in his final imprisonment and it's been revealed to him that he's not getting released this time. And this, on, in this imprisonment he's going to be uh, executed. Uh, he's going to uh, decapitate is what we're told. Uh, the tradition is that um, because he was a Roman citizen he was immune to, to crucifixion. They could not crucify him as a Roman citizen. So instead he gets beheaded. And uh, uh, he says, for I am already, let's see, when do I back up here? Verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. This is, this is the ordination message for every pastor I know, <laughs> right? We preach this for Pastor Dan, we preach this for Pastor Cliff, God preached for me. Uh, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and by His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Every pastor has that as a duty. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And so he's telling Timothy, just get ready. If you're a faithful teacher, you're not going to be popular, and they're going to want to get rid of you, and they're going to want to have an ear tickler come in here. They're going to want to, first of all, they want to try to turn you into the ear tickler. And then when you don't turn into an ear tickler, then they're going to try to bounce you out of there and get an ear tickler to come in here. So just stay faithful, in season and out of season. And uh, they want teachers according to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then our term in verse 6, for I am already, or verse 7, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Now think about that. What were all those offerings in the Old Testament? There were burnt offerings, there were sin offerings, trespass offerings, guilt offerings. Uh, What were the drink offerings about? You remember those? Drink offerings involved a cup and involved pouring it out. Now Paul says, guess what? I'm, I'm being poured out. There'll be more of that coming up in Philippians, by the way. Um being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. So he's ready. Not a doubt, he's ready. You know. And when a believer knows he's ready, there's nothing more beautiful than that. Okay? Mike knew he was ready. My mother knew she was ready. This Catholic chaplain tried to come in and give my mom some kind of encouragement. He had no encouragement. You know, he's trying to talk about whatever, and mom was way ahead of him. 
and uh, just something funny. And uh, so he, he kind of ducks the issue, then he says, well, I've got to tell you, I've got some news, I've got some bad news. And she, he said, uh, you're, this, is, you, this is terminal, you're going to die tonight or tomorrow. And mom just smiled, just smiled and said, I thought you were going to tell me that, that's great. <laughs> you know, how exciting. Because uh, she's finished the course, she's fought the good fight, she's kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. This is one of the easiest crowns to ever win. One of the easiest crowns. Because what do you got to do to get this? Not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. All you got to do is live daily in eager anticipation of the rapture. Just day by day, think, Father, is it today? Father, is it today? I hope it's today. I hope it's today. Love is appearing. And this crown is yours. It's an easy, easy crown. All right. And Paul knows it's his. Demas is another story. Uh, Demas does not have assurance of that kind of a crown. Why? Well, because he loved this present world and he deserted. Deserted Paul and went to Thessalonica. How sad is that? Okay. So don't be a Demas. Be a Paul. Let's, uh, let's fight the good fight. Let's endure. Let's, uh, let's stay day by day thinking, wow, could be today. Could be today. All right. Somebody says, hey, you want to do lunch on Friday? Say, well, maybe. Okay. Trumpet pending, I'd be glad to. All right. But, uh, you know, if that trumpet sounds, I'm not sticking around just to have lunch with you. I'm gone. We're out of here. <laughs> there's a much better lunch upstairs anyway. This is, you know, there's feasting, there's wine, there's Jesus. I mean, let's do that. Finally, then uh, Hebrews, right? Hebrews 12.1. got the hall of fame of faith and, and then you get jesus chapter 11 is full of old testament heroes that you just look at and read their stories and and uh, draw encouragement say i'm going to walk by faith therefore since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the agony that is set before us. The struggle that is set before us. It's a struggle. Okay? And uh, I've realized that, you know, we, we wouldn't pick that out for ourselves. We'd rather not. You know, who wants to do a 50-yard dash when you can do a 50-yard mosey? You know, a little bit of a kind of a, maybe a 10-yard stroll, something, you know. But no. It's a race. It's an agony. It's requires endurance run it with endurance the race that's set before us fixing our eyes on jesus the author and perfecter of our faith get your eyes off jesus you're like peter sinking in the water keep your eyes on jesus you're walking on the water okay you're running with endurance and so we have uh we have it there all right well that's the last of the details then on agonology and the last of the details from chapter 1. Let's look at chapter 2. I'll give you a little bit of a teaser and preview for what we're going to do with um, next Wednesday night. Guest speaker Sunday morning, so uh, I won't be here to uh, teach Philippians Sunday morning. All right. But chapter 2 starts with a therefore. All right. And which means we're building on where chapter 1 left off. And we're building on the fact that what the Philippians can look forward to is experiencing the same conflict 
that Paul has gone through. Okay? So they saw it in him, they hear it that's in him, they're getting ready to go through it themselves. And so then Paul says, all right, here's what we have in front of us. Not just in front of you, in front of us. We're all together in this. So he says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and all of these ifs are true, all of these ifs are first class condition, since there is, or assuming there is, right? So therefore, assuming that there is encouragement in Christ, and we know there is, and assuming that there's consolation of love, and we know there is, assuming that there's fellowship of the Spirit, and we know there is, assuming that there is affection and compassion, there's your touchy-feely emotions, okay? And all of this is there. All of this is there when brothers are struggling, when sisters are struggling, okay? He goes on to say, make my joy complete. So Paul's going to have joy with the encouragement in Christ. He's going to have joy in the consolation of love. He's going to have joy in the fellowship of the Spirit. He's even going to take joy in the touchy-feely, the affection and the compassion, okay? He's going to have joy in all four of those areas, but then he says, you know what would really cap that off? Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. When all of this testing forges them together into a unity. Forges them together into a unity. Okay? So we've got to study this. We've got to break this down. We've got to put it in the right order. We've got to make sure that we don't ignore the touchy-feelies, but we've got to make sure that we don't put it up front and base everything on it. Okay? But then what is it that forges unity? Unity cannot be artificially forged. You can't just have some kind of a phony unity that we pretend is real. It's got to be real unity, and that comes through the conflict. That comes through the consolation of suffering. That comes through all these things. And so uh, let me just outline it for you here. This chapter has how many verses? 30 verses, all right? And the first 18 of them are three consecutive exhortations, all right? Three consecutive exhortations, or Paul is just giving them a cheerleader routine. He's just encouraging them, saying, do this, do this, do this. So the first exhortation in verses 1 through 4 is make my joy complete, right? Make my joy complete. I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to use a dirty, hairy voice with make my day, okay? I'm going to, you know, here's Paul, and instead of make my day, he's saying, make my joy complete. And that's verses 1 through 4. Then verses 5 through 11 is have this attitude. Have this attitude. And what attitude is that? Jesus' attitude. That's the kenosis section. That's what I've been looking forward to ever since the Lord said, we're going to do Philippians next. And I got all excited. Ooh, Philippians, kenosis. Okay? And, you know, it's just, it's tempting. You want to, you want to start a book study in Philippians and start it with Philippians 2.5. Okay? Uh, you can't do that. We're going to get there. We're almost there. It's the second out of these three exhortations that start the chapter. So verses 5 through 11 is have this attitude. Have this thinking. Think this way. Think the way Christ thunk. Okay? <laughs> That's how he thunk. That's how he thought. Okay? Think how he thought. Have this attitude. Because his attitude was not a selfish attitude. He wasn't looking out for me first. It wasn't, you know, if he was thinking about himself, he wouldn't have been on the cross. Because he didn't need to be on the cross. We did. So he was thinking of us, and he went to the cross. 
So have this attitude. The third exhortation is verses 12 through 18. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't be content simply being saved. Work that out. Live that out. Work that out. There is, there is a lot to do as a saved one. It's not simply being saved. So work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Not in your own human effort, because remember, it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. All these powerful verses come in chapter 2. <laughs> Isn't that something? I thought we had some good verses in chapter 1. Now we got some great verses in chapter 2. So there's three exhortations to start the chapter. The first half of the chapter is these three exhortations, right? So uh, make my joy complete, have this attitude, and um, the third one is work out your salvation. Those three things. And, and they're all um, very uh, exhortative, exhortative. They're all very, do this, do this, do this. Come on, you can do this. As Paul was exhorting them, uh, one after the other, after the three of them in a row. Then he says, I'm sending you some help. <laughs> okay? Uh, the, the last half of the chapter, 19 through 30, is some travel arrangements. And what he wants to do, he wants to send them Timothy. He really wants to send them Timothy, and he hopes to. Uh, it says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Because Timothy's unique. There's nobody like him. Of, of everybody he's training, nobody matches what, what Timothy is ready for. Okay? As young as he is, he is number one in his class. He is the only one suited. Um, it says in verse 20, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. So he's got other people with him. He's got Demas and he's got Aristarchus and he's got Titus and Luke. He's got some others with him, not Luke, but he's got others with him. And uh, he can't send them, but he can send Timothy, part of his training ministry. So we'll deal with that. And then, before he sends Timothy, though, he's going to send him Epaphroditus. And it, it, this part of the chapter is almost written backwards, because in, in 19 through 24, he hopes to send Timothy, and then he hopes to show up himself. But then in verse 25, he says, in the meantime, here's Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus probably carried the letter. That they're reading Philippians because Epaphroditus brought it and it handed it to them. Okay, remember, no email back then, no Twitter, no, <laughs> no texting. So uh, somebody had to walk the scroll to Philippi, and, and here I think it's clear that Epaphroditus is the one. So um, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, and uh, we we discussed this that he's the one that came from Philippi with the money that they had donated. He's the one that came from Philippi with a love offering to bring Paul while he was in, in prison. And now Paul's going to send him back with uh, the book of Philippians. What a gift is that? Can you imagine? <laughs> we put some funds together, we're going to support a missionary endeavor, and we, we send the funds off for a missionary endeavor, and then somebody comes back and he's got a brand new book of the Bible. So here's Philippians. This is the book of Philippians. You know, how humbling, how, what, am, what amazing. So that's, that's what's going to happen there. And uh, that takes us down through the end of chapter 2. All right? So, sneak peek. That's what we're going to be looking at. Any questions on that? Thoughts, concerns, comments, questions? All right. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this study. 
I pray, Father, now that we've listened to it, we understand it, Father, I pray that you would take this gnosis and make it very real to each one of us. Make it more than knowledge, Father. Make it full knowledge. Um, implant it deep within our soul, Father, that it might spring forth and bear fruit. Give us the love to apply this knowledge in every application. So, Father, thank you for, uh, for your faithfulness in opening the eyes of our understanding, for leading us in the paths of righteousness for your namesake. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty, keep your armor on, walk in the light as he is in the light.